You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat. However, today is the most special show we have done. Can you believe it? This is the 100th episode of Sasta. Now, I want to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin and everyone at Team Sasta for continuously putting up with me and my British ways, and to you for consuming my dulcet English tones so frequently. To celebrate this very special milestone, I'm thrilled to welcome a truly incredible guest to the show today, Aaron Levy. Now, Aaron co-founded Box with three high school friends in 2005 when they discovered there wasn't a modern solution for sharing and collaborating on work. They created Box to provide businesses with an easy way to share, access and manage information with enterprise-grade security, compliance and governance. 11 years later, Box has been adopted by nearly 65% of the Fortune 500 and has nearly 70,000 paying business customers. The company went public in January 2015 and remains one of the fastest growing enterprise software companies. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to Aaron today, without which the episode would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today. Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers, and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search, because now Sasta podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash Sasta with the coupon code Sasta podcast, that's algolia.com forward slash Sasta. But enough from me, so now I'm immensely honoured to hand over to Aaron Levy, founder and CEO at Box. Good, that's perfect, okay, I think we're warmed up. Aaron, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Aaron. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Now, I'd love to get started today briefly with a quick founding story of of Box and the aha moment for you. Yeah, so we started Box like every uh, standard enterprise software company in uh, our college dorm room. And we were, uh, it was 2004, and it was incredibly hard at the time to share files and to collaborate. And while today that seems like an unbelievably simple problem and, and something that's been you know completely solved at this point, back in 2004, it was actually really hard to do. So you had email systems that had file storage limitations that made it very hard to share large documents. You would carry around USB thumb drives, which obviously made it impossible to collaborate. In uh, an internship that I had at the time, we were using legacy kind of enterprise collaboration technology that also made it pretty complicated. So everywhere I, I turned, it was way too hard to share information and to, to get work done. And what we realized was as more and more people moved to mobile devices, as browsers got to be more and more performant, as the cost of storage declined, as internet bandwidth improved, that there'd be a way to store data online securely and then be able to get access to it from anywhere. And so that was why we started the company back in, uh, got the idea in 2004 and then launched it in 2005. And speaking of kind of the idea generation phase there in the past, I want to move to a statement that you made before uh, about the future of the industry. And you've said before that we'll see consumer 
consumer and enterprise products converge in the coming years. And so I'm super intrigued to hear your thoughts on, on how you envision this playing out, particularly, and, and do you see further progress in, in the consumerization of the enterprise? Yeah, well, I mean, most of the predictions I have are just pretty made up. So, um, but that <laughs> that one is, is you know, based on, I, I think this is one of the, the easier ones to predict. But basically, as consumers have greater and greater expectations for technology, because we all have iPhones or Android devices, we're using Facebook, we're using YouTube, we have higher expectations of how technology should work, how simple it should be, how easy it should be to get access to information. And when we go into the workplace, which is where we spend most of the hours that we have in a day in a lot of cases, the technology that we tend to use is sort of the opposite of these consumer tools. It, it tends to slow us down. They tend to be very complex. It makes it really hard to share information or get work done. And so as our expectations grow and as what we know is possible continues to increase over time because of what we're dealing with in our personal lives, we believe that fundamentally enterprise software will have to, to uh, catch up and, and keep up. And that's been one of the, the sort of core principles of our company since really day one, but more importantly, when we pivoted into the enterprise, was that we knew that we always had to stay consumer focused from a design, a user experience, a product standpoint, even though we were going to sell into the enterprise. And so while I think that you might have different vendors for personal tools or consumer use cases from deep enterprise tools or enterprise technology, the expectations around usability and simplicity and the really the consumer qualities of these products will largely converge. And now we're actually even seeing it converge so much that the top consumer vendors are entering the enterprise aggressively. So you look at what Facebook is doing with Workplace, what Amazon has certainly done with AWS and, and their computing products over the years, what Google is doing with Google Apps and Google Suite. So we now are actually seeing a convergence of vendors, but more importantly, the trend is just that all of our enterprise technology should be simple, elegant, easy to use, uh, and it and we think that's going to cause a, a revolution in enterprise software. I'm really intrigued. You said about the, the two very separate worlds there of enterprise, sorry, and consumer. I'm intrigued because I had uh, Josh Stein at DFJ on the show recently, and he said that when you decided to move to enterprise from consumer, you engaged in kind of a real tenacity and willingness to, to kind of burn the boats on it, so to speak. I'm intrigued. When making this transition, was it a very difficult decision to come to? And, and how did that decision-making process look like? Yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, it was super obvious, and and it, it really didn't require a, a kind of you know, MBA to figure out that, uh, that over time what was going to happen is the cost of storage in the consumer space was going to continue to drop, that companies like Google, Apple, and others would provide this type of service to consumers for free. And so as, as a startup, as an independent company, you really wouldn't have that much of an opportunity to, to you know, have a sustainable and, and viable business over time. So in retrospect, I think that was, that, was, uh, that was pretty obvious. The harder part for us was the change of our vision and, and strategy and what that would take in terms of the new talent we would have to bring on board, all of the new problems that we would have to solve, and making sure that we could do so with the same principles that led us into starting the company in the first place. And that's, I think, maybe the biggest driver of our success. And that, that's been uh, when we decided to pivot into the enterprise, and this was back in 2006, 2007, and we were the founding team. We were 23 and 22 years old, the, the four of us, and and we had no experience in enterprise software. In fact, at the time, really, uh, you, you couldn't uh, have described a worse thing for us to want to go do. You know, why would you drop out of college uh, to go build an enterprise software company? I mean, we couldn't think of anything less sexy than that. We 
weren't particularly excited about, you know, going and building out a, a big enterprise software company because what we had in our head was Oracle and SAP and these big incumbents in enterprise technology and the fact that they really, you know, weren't known to be innovative or move very quickly or, you know, be particularly disruptive or easy to use. So we were very concerned about what would happen if, after we went after the enterprise and would we end up looking like one of those companies. So what we decided was if we're going to pivot into the enterprise, we have to keep our core really kind of consumer ethos that we had when we started the company, which means that the way that we design products have to always be for the user first and never put the enterprise or IT ahead of the user. We always have to make sure that the user is is uh, is getting the best experience in this new enterprise world. We, we knew that the way that we would do deliver customer success um, and the way that we would make sure that our customers are able to leverage our products and be wildly successful with our products had to be very different from traditional enterprise software companies where actually, you know, customer support is sort of an afterthought uh, in those organizations. We knew that the way that we would, uh, the economic model of our product, how frictionless we would make uh, transacting with us, all of those things we, we wanted to do in a very disruptive and, and new way. And we, we could afford to because of the cloud delivery model. So we kind of made a list of all of the ways that we thought that the new era of enterprise software was going to be different from the traditional, you know, kind of approach to enterprise software. And we wanted to keep our core principles, even as we pivoted the company. And that was a, realistically, that was a multi-quarter process to, to really go through that transition. But as soon as we fully went through the transition, we did, to Josh's point, kind of burn the, the boats and, and we, uh, we we really stopped on the consumer model and went fully after the enterprise. Speaking of transitions there, it was actually Mamoon that said your ability to seamlessly uh, move through the transitions of company scaling is one of the main reasons for the success of both Box and your incredible journey as, as CEO and leader. I'm intrigued to hear your take on the scaling process and those different inflection points. So were there some that were more challenging than others? What ones do you think were most notable for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that the secret weapon and the and the you know really the the accolades in in, uh, in those transition points go more to the team. So I think my job and the job of the, the founder or the CEO is to recognize when you're at those inflection points and recognize when you're at those transition points. But ultimately, it comes down to the individuals that you have in your, your company and your organization and your team that make you successful in those in those moments of, in, of inflection. So, I, you know, I don't know that I can perfectly categorize each of those major stages, but certainly you have the founding period, which is you're in the wilderness, you're trying to figure out what, what do you want to build, who do you sell it to, what your long-term strategy is. That took a couple of years, frankly, for us, and that was uh, heavily just driven by the persistence uh, and fortitude of our founding team and early employees, where you know, at, at first it was four of us, and then it became you know five to ten people, and, and every day we would we would just go to the drawing board and say, what do we want to be when we grow up? What should our business model be? What can this look like at scale? And we got very lucky that some of our earliest employees were very successful and and good at adapting quickly to those changes, and and we had a very good kind of feedback loop. And that's something where we just got very lucky on who we hired initially that could help us with that journey. Then there's sort of stage two, which is the early scale stage. So that's when you start to think about your team, you're bringing on more people, you're selling more customers, you have new business processes that are emerging. And at the tail end of that phase, uh, we brought in a chief operating officer who really could help us build up the team and organization that uh, that eventually would would be really kind of stage three if uh, if these are the buckets, which is then just you know pure rapid scale. So going from forty people to to fifteen hundred in um, you know five or six years, and that's that's where you have to 
really think about operations. You have to think about operational discipline. This is where you're building out large sales teams, large engineering groups, and the leaders of each of those organizations were obviously instrumental in us being able to do that. And that's that's ultimately what it comes down to. So my job is just to recognize when we're at one of those moments of change or moments of inflection and make sure that we have the right team and the right people that will put us in the best position possible to succeed and respond to, uh, to those changes. Was there one that you found particularly challenging, more so than the others? I would say that um, I, I'm, I'm generally bad at sort of ranking or prioritizing things, especially backwards looking. You know, I think that each of them caused their own unique stresses. So when we were really, really small, the stress was just pure survival. So that was, do we even have a business here? Uh, that's when you're most stressed because you're in a constant just crisis of what what is it that you're trying to build and what are you trying to look like as you scale? And so until we really, again, burn the, the bridges or burn the boats and decided that we're going to be an enterprise software company. That was just a constant struggle. Then when you're going from 10 to 15 employees to 50 to 100, that's about, is this actually going to work? You know, we have a theory, we have a thesis, but we're only at 10 million in revenue or whatever the right you know scale is. And you are going up against incumbents that are generating tens of billions of dollars. And so that's much more of the stress of how do we actually win? I mean, how do we how do we take what is a much smaller resourced company and make sure that we can point it against uh, incumbents that uh, that we want to be able to go and disrupt? And what is it about our, our team and our environment that's going to let us do that? Finally, in the pure scaling mode, that's where it's, you know, can we keep the culture healthy? Are we executing fast enough? Is there the right financing to, to feed our, our operational scale that, that we're driving? And all of the, the various points that occur there. And then there's always acute moments of, of challenges. So we dealt with a financial crisis in 2008, and we had to make sure that our strategy was still going to play out successfully. We dealt with a an IPO challenge in 2014 where, you know, there was a moment there where we were going public and and we, we had to hold back. And so you're always dealing with new changes in, of the scenery and new events in the, in the business. And again, your job is, uh, especially as a founder, is to always have a North Star, to always have a, a long-term mission that you're passionate about, that you deeply believe in, that gets you through those moments and allows you to, to get the team to, to focus on the long-term. And that's uh, we've always been fortunate to be very clear on what that North Star is. Talking about getting the team to the to long-term now, I had Ted Blosser, a former Box employee who now founded WorkRamp on the show. You've talked to everybody. I've talked to everybody. I'm a, practically a stalker. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he said that you like to send emails at 1 a.m. after a great quarter, and you'd say, congratulations, fantastic quarter, but these are the goals for the next quarter. And so I'd like your advice on how do you appreciate, you know, small wins, and, and, and but notable wins of hitting great numbers for a quarter with then the desire to push further. How do you kind of combat both the appreciation and the desire to push on? I guess thank you to Ted Blosser for our my uh, my secret uh, my, my deepest darkest secrets of uh, <laughs> not uh, being particularly good at recognition of past events. So uh, you know I, I would say I'm not particularly balanced on this dimension. It's it's certainly a flaw. I'm much more focused on the future and where we need to go next. And so what uh, what Ted certainly relayed is you know as soon as it's midnight at the end of a quarter, then the only thing to start worrying about is that we're now in a new quarter and we have new goals. We have a new we have new limits that we have to reach. We have a new peak that we have to hit. And so at that moment, it's you want to learn from the lessons of the past quarter, what went well, what didn't go well. You certainly want to acknowledge awesome execution. But the new problem 
is uh, is that you're going to have to grow another whatever percent in that next quarter. And, and especially in software businesses that are in hyper-competitive markets, if you're not focused on the future at all times, you're going to lose. And so we, we tend to tilt way more toward what are we going to do next? How do we get there as quickly as possible? Certainly, you want to be informed by and learn from the past, but you don't have a lot of time to, to, uh, to stand around and celebrate. Absolutely. No, I, I do completely understand. Uh, but I would love to dive into a quick fire round with you. Uh, so we call it the 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per statement. Uh, and, and yeah, quick fire. How does that sound? Uh, it sounds like you're giving me feedback that my answers are too long. <laughs> no, not at all. But okay, ready to dive in? Uh, let's do it. Okay, what's your favorite SaaS reading material? You know, I think a, a couple of the things, the, my, my favorite books on the topic broadly, and, and it's not necessarily specific to SaaS as much as um, as just business, you know, would be Crossing the Chasm uh, by Jeffrey Moore, Inside the Tornado, uh, Innovator's Dilemma by uh, Clay Christensen, High Output Management from Andy Grove, Behind the Cloud from Benioff. So I think there's been great books that, that you know, the combination and the you know, aggregate of all of that knowledge has, has really informed uh, how we've built Box and the decisions that we've made over the years. Mm-hmm. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of Box? wish I would have read all of those books uh, at the beginning and, and, and certainly many others. So, um, you know, I think that the things that we look back on and, and we at sometimes have been lucky that we maintain it. Other times we stopped maintaining as well and we had to, to refocus on them. But things like, you know, culture is really everything. It sounds trite because every startup kind of talks about it when it when they're small. But as soon as you start scaling, you recognize how critical culture is to your long-term success. So, you know, that focus on culture, focusing on core principles, what are the things that you believe that the rest of the market doesn't believe that are going to allow you to continue to thrive in the future and make constantly make innovative decisions and always remain different from the rest of the market? Those are things that, that we, again, uh, maybe more fortunately held on to, but I wish that we were very, very focused on those you know, from day one. And, uh, and then, of course, it's always about the team, and that ties to culture as well. But, but you know, your team is everything in, uh, in building out these kinds of businesses. What will it take for Box to be 10x from here. Josh Stein had many thoughts. What are your take? We are certainly benefiting from a bunch of macro trends and kind of tailwinds that I think, frankly, a lot of SaaS or cloud companies are benefiting from. So whether it's the the fact that most companies are trying to modernize their infrastructure because they want to move faster, they want to spend less on IT, they want to be more productive, or if it's even challenges of companies are caring more about cybersecurity, they are dealing with a lot of complexity around regulation and privacy. And we believe that the only way that you're both going to stay secure but also be productive stay compliant, but also be able to be collaborative and be able to work with partners all around the world. The only way you're going to do any of these things is if you have modern software that can abstract the complexity away from all of these difficult problems from your end users. And so you want to make sure that as an enterprise, you can solve these issues, but as end users, as employees and companies, you can actually work as easily as possible. You can be as productive as possible. You can share information with anyone uh, wherever they are. And so the big macro trends of companies needing to modernize, the speed of business obviously continuing to only get more and more rapid, the complexity of business only growing, all of these things really support our strategy. And so, you know, I think we're, we're pretty focused on making sure that we that we continue to execute on our mission and our uh, and our core focus areas. Absolutely. But I, I, I want to finish today and moving away from the quick fire. So don't worry, I'm not telling you to be short with your answers here. <laughs> uh, but we've spoken a bit about the past today. So putting a slightly futuristic lens on, with that in mind, what does the rise of AI and machine learning mean for business? And at what stage 
age of these applications transferable, do you think, to the world of enterprise? I'm glad you asked. I was going to say it's kind of awkward to be on a podcast where we're not talking about AI. So I was going to call you out on that. Uh, it would be good to talk about AI and and uh, and where where we see uh, the future going. So so we um, deeply believe that today most enterprise software is is you know kind of quote unquote dumb. It's uh, it doesn't learn from what you do uh, inside of it. It doesn't change based on the behavior that you have. It doesn't learn from the information that you're putting into it. And so we believe that in the future, software is going to power uh, and empower us to make more uh, intelligent decisions, to learn from what other people are working on that is pertinent to us, to leverage information and data uh, in much more useful and, and powerful ways. And uh, and that's going to be a, a massive break between the legacy uh, world of enterprise software. And that would mean legacy even in the cloud and what modern enterprise technology is going to look like. And so for us, what that means is more and more intelligence built into how you use, consume, share, and work on your information. So how can I know what other people are working on around me? How do I get recommendations of things to look at that I didn't know to ask for? Um, how do I more quickly find my information? How do I have almost an intelligent assistant around my daily work? And that will serve to reduce 20 to 30 to 40% of the time that we spend on today things that computers are way better at because computers can know more about what's going on uh, than we can. And it won't necessarily mean that we spend less time working. Um, It'll mean that we spend more time working on the things that are differentiated um, and things that really require uh, our intellect and our creativity. So that's where we think AI is going to have a massive role. So today, the trend tends to be in the consumer market, um, and it's obviously incredibly powerful in the consumer space with Alexa, with Facebook, and the newsfeed, and Google Now, and Siri. But all of those capabilities, all of those same underlying trends are going to impact the enterprise as well, and it's going to happen sooner than we think. And so at Box, we're very, very focused on investing in and, and building out capabilities for what that future looks like. And does that look like internal building, or is it very much an acquisition and an acquire market, do you think? Uh, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be internal. Uh, it's going to be through partnership. It's going to be, in some cases, through acquisition. We, we acquired a company last fall that does large-scale data analytics and, um, and, and intelligence on information. Um, so we acquired a small team to help us boost our, our capabilities in this area. So we, we are going to leverage a whole bunch of different uh, efforts uh, to be able to, to move more in this direction. And, and, and what's cool is, is that you have a bunch of modern open platforms from Google, from Amazon, from Microsoft, from IBM that we can leverage as well. So it's not going to just be our innovation. It's going to be taking the innovation of other companies and mixing and matching these capabilities to deliver better experiences for our customers. Well, Aaron, I can't emphasize enough what a pleasure it's been to have you on the show. As you heard, I've spoken to so many people, um, but it really has been so fantastic. So thank you so much for joining me today. Cool. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. Such a huge honour for me as a SaaS nerd to have Aaron on the show today and a huge thanks to him for giving up the time today to come on the show to celebrate our very special 100 episode milestone. Again, a big hand to Jason Lemkin for the intro. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. You can follow Jason and Aaron on Twitter at JasonLK and at Levy respectively. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their 
their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.